our gracious Heavenly Father. We sang several songs this morning, Lord, that I think have so much bearing on what we're talking about. Lord, you are the anchor of hope for the soul of every person sitting here. Lord, thank you for giving us your son, Jesus. Thank you that he is that sure and steadfast aspect of our lives that holds on to us. And Father, as we talk about the various things we're talking about, especially about the great promises that you've given to each of us, help us to learn and to remember that it's not us, but Christ in us. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would be our teacher this morning, that he would be our guide, he would teach us and guide us and give us understanding, and that you would be glorified in our time together. In Jesus' name, Amen. Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 13, says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Last week we talked about our service to others and the promise God has given to those who are diligent. We ended last week with the exhortation to imitate those who through faith and patience have inherited the promises of God. In other words, those who have gone before us, we should imitate them as they imitated Christ. Today, we will see that the promise, the inheritance, and the hope that we have in Christ is based on the unchanging nature of God and is the anchor of our souls. I'm very excited about this message. One thing I want to point out before we dive in, if you go all the way back to chapter 5, verse 10 and 11, there Jesus is referred to as he was called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. That began a bookend that is the rest of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6. Because when we get to the end of our passage today in verse 20, 
talking about Jesus having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, and I promised you we'd get back into that in chapter 7. Chapter 7 is so much fun from a theological point of view for those of us who are like theology nerds and just love to get into the stuff that we don't normally think about. When we get to chapter 7, if you are not really familiar with it, chapter 7 will just blow your mind. It's so cool, but that's next week. This week, we're picking up in verse 13 of chapter 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he, that speaking of Abraham, had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. So there's some really cool stuff in here for us to unpack as we talk about the example of Abraham. So when God gave a promise to Abraham, he swore by himself. Because there is nothing greater for him to swear by. This means that the promises of God are upheld by God's faithfulness and not Abraham's. Or the promises of God to us are upheld by God's faithfulness and not our own. For which we should be very grateful. Because if it was up to me to live so perfectly... In order to get a hold of the promises of God, I would be in a lot of trouble. Now, some of you, who are clearly better than I, might be a little closer to okay, but you still wouldn't be okay. Because none of us can be faithful 100% of the time. None of us can be perfect 100% of the time. And so we should be extremely grateful for the grace of God that gives us these promises, promises like salvation through Christ, based upon his faithfulness and not our own. Now, God actually gave Abraham four promises. So we're going we're gonna to dive down a rabbit hole for just a minute. The first promise God gave Abraham was he promised him the land of Canaan, what became Israel. This promise is seen in Genesis chapter 13, verse 16, as well as in Genesis chapter 15, verses 4, 17, and 18 as well. Oh, no, wait. Sorry, that's the next promise. Genesis chapter 13. Promise number two is in those other places. Um, the promise of a son and innumerable descendants. That's the second promise God gave to Abraham. That's in Genesis 13, 16, 15, 4, 17, and 18 as well. The third promise that God gave him was a covenant between God and Abraham that would be passed on to Isaac and on to Jacob and on to Jacob's children and would be an everlasting covenant between God and the descendants of Jacob or the children of Israel, which was given in Genesis 17, 7 as in, in this, that's important to us and it's important to the people of Israel because that means God isn't done with Israel yet. Because he said this is an everlasting covenant. Now, if God makes an everlasting covenant that is based upon his faithfulness and not our own, then that covenant is not null and void. Right? He still has a plan for Israel. If you want to spend a little more time in that, you could go back and listen to our studies from Romans 9, 10, and 11, 
that are on our website, or if you go to my YouTube page, Beware the Caffeinated Pastor, and go through the study on Revelation, I spend a lot of time on that there as well. Promise number four. And this is the one that is most meaningful to us. This promise is that through Abraham's seed, singular, a specific descendant, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's in Genesis 22, 18. That is a prophecy of Jesus Christ coming through the line of Abraham, which he did. Jesus was born of the tribe of Judah. Judah was one of the sons of Jacob. You know, it goes back to Isaac and back to Abraham, of course. And so this speaks of the fact that the whole world would be blessed through one specific descendant of Abraham, and we are living proof of that promise coming to pass. Because we're not, most of us, I don't think, are Jewish. We don't live in Israel. We're not descendants of any of the tribes of Abraham specifically, most of us at least. Yet here we are blessed because we know Jesus Christ, because we are saved by the grace of God through Jesus' death and resurrection. That's a blessing, and we are part of that, all the nations. How cool is that? Now, God confirmed these promises multiple times, but Paul here in Hebrews quotes Genesis 22, 16 and 17, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. See, God had to swear by himself, as there was no one greater. We're going to talk about that more in a bit. And these promises constitute what we call the Abrahamic covenant. Are you ready to go down a second rabbit hole? So that rabbit hole took us, and then there's another branch. So this is a second rabbit hole. So these promises constitute what is known as the Abrahamic covenant. And throughout the Bible, various covenants have been used as a way in which God was dealing with and relating to humanity. Now, what I am about to give you very, very quickly is a realm of theology known as covenant theology, right? And there's different ways to approach theology. And one of them is covenant theology, that we look at the Bible broken up as a series of covenants between God and human beings. There are others. There's systematic theology, and systematic theology can be very useful. But what systematic theology does is it takes themes out of the Bible. So maybe you want to talk about the Holy Spirit. So you look up every place in the Bible you can find that speaks about the Holy Spirit, which is a lot. And then from there, what the Bible says about that topic, you build your theology. You don't build your theology and then go find it in the Bible or make something in the Bible skewed to fit what you want to believe. But you take what the Bible says, and from what the Bible says, you build your theology. Then there's one called dispensational theology. And dispensational theology is actually really similar to covenant theology with a few tweaks that I disagree with, but we're not going to get into that at the moment. Um, then you have what's known as biblical theology. Now, biblical theology and systematic theology are a lot alike. The difference is systematic theology takes topics, whereas biblical theology deals with those topics as you go through the scriptures, right? So in the end, you are still looking to the word of God to establish what you believe 
It's just one way does it more topically, whereas the other way does it more chronologically through the scripture. So now back to covenant theology. I'm having fun. I hope you are. Covenant theology started with the Adamic covenant, which guess what? was a covenant between God and Adam. Right? Back in the garden. Tend the garden, keep it, be fruitful, and multiply. Don't eat of that tree. Adam blew it. Then you go on to the Noahic covenant, right? Aren't these fun words? The covenant between God and Noah. Build a boat. I'll protect you and your family and two of every animal that I will bring to you. And then that covenant was expanded upon after the flood to include um, specific sacrifices, eating of clean animals, and capital punishment. But you can go back and read Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9 to get all that. Then you have the Abrahamic covenant based on the four promises we just looked at. Then you have the Mosaic covenant, the covenant between God and Moses to deliver the people of Israel. Then you have the Levitical covenant, which was the law given to Moses that was to be enacted by the Levites. Sometimes the Mosaic covenant and the Levitical covenant are put together. Now that covenant stood until one very specific day day of Jesus' death and then subsequent resurrection. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant that I establish with you. And the new covenant is a covenant of grace. When we celebrated communion this morning, we celebrated that new covenant. And that covenant will stand that anybody who wants to spend eternity in heaven and be forgiven of their sins can come to Jesus Christ until the world ends. Or you die. Whichever comes first. I'm kind of hoping the world's going to end before I die, but that's just me. We are almost done with these three verses. After the last thing, that, it says it in verse 15, that after Abraham, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Now, I love that statement. And I'm going to tell you why. Because when we get to chapter 11, we'll see how Abraham and Sarah's faith is remembered. But when we studied... Genesis chapters 12 through 25, we saw that how patient did Abraham really wait? Anybody? Right? Did he, did he have any issues along the way? Right? He had a few, didn't he? Right? Twice he lied to the king of the land. Once was Pharaoh, once was Abimelech about his wife. She's my sister. Now, he later justified it. Well, she is my half-sister, and that's another topic. But Twice he lied about who his wife was because he was afraid for himself. Was that patiently waiting for the promises of God? Right? A God who said that he would protect him? What about Abraham and Hagar? Anybody remember that? Right? God said, I'm going to give you a child. Years go by. He waited over 20 years for that promise to come to pass. And along the way, Sarah's like, well, this isn't working. Go sleep with my servant girl, have a baby, and I'll, I'll pretend it's mine. 
And Abraham, being the upright, holy man of God that he was, said, okay. That sounds like a great idea. He was still a guy, right? Guys have been the same for thousands of years. Um, but how did that work out? Later on, he told God, don't, just don't worry about the promise. Let Ishmael be my son to stand before you. And God said, no, there's a son of promise coming, and it is not going to be Ishmael. So when we look back, does it look to us like Abraham is perfect? But as the Holy Spirit inspired the book of Hebrews, that's how God saw him. That's a little mind-boggling to me. That he was patient, which means he was long-spirited as he endured hardships. And after that, he received the promise of God. Now, as we went through the book of Judges, which we just finished a week and a half ago, God called Gideon a mighty man of valor. While Gideon was hiding in a wine press, afraid for his life, afraid that the enemies of Israel at the time were going to come and steal the grain that he was threshing out. And God shows up and says, Gideon, mighty man of valor. Is that who Gideon was in that moment? No. Here, God tells us that Abraham patiently endured when God knew, as we do, that Abraham had made a lot of mistakes along the way. And what this tells me, and this is so important for all of us to hear, is that God sees us differently than we see ourselves. And God sees us differently, or sees others differently, than we see them. Our identity is in Christ. Now, we have not reached the fullness of our identity in him, but we are in the process of moving towards it, as we are having Christ formed in us, which Galatians 4.19 tells us. There's a fancy word involved in this that we used when we were talking about Gideon called eschatological dualism. You can say that three times fast if you would like. Eschatological dualism means that both our current position in Christ and our future fullness in Christ that we are moving towards can exist at the same time. That's cool to me. Because right now, I am in Christ. And therefore, my identity is in Christ. I am not my past. I am not my mistakes. I am not any diagnosis. I am his. And so are you. Sorry, I needed to hear Am I fully his? Am I perfect? Not quite. I'm still moving towards who I can be in Christ. Eschatological dualism. And because of his great love for us, because of his sovereignty and his plan for us, he can and does see us differently than we see ourselves or the way we see one another. We love to judge by outward appearance, don't we? We love to look at people and go, oh, well, I'll give you a great example. I love living in Gunnison. I 
thrive on the cold weather here. And I make fun of people, right? I'll be walking down Main Street or driving through town, and I'll see somebody walking down the street when it's, you know, 70 degrees outside with their big puffy winter jacket. I'm like, oh, they're from Texas. <laughs> or Oklahoma. No offense. Nothing wrong with Texas or Oklahoma. But if you live somewhere where it's 115, well, 70 degrees is going to feel chilly. And I get that. And I'm okay. I, but I automatically judge by an outward appearance, don't I? Oh, that's a puffy jacket. <laughs> they must be cold. They must not be from here. And I've had people look at me funny because I will wear shorts and short sleeves until we are well below zero. And once we get below zero, I'll put a sweatshirt on, but I'll probably still wear shorts until it's way down there, and then I'll start wearing sweats and getting a little dressed up. But that's just me. And we do this to each other. We do this to ourselves. We judge ourselves by our successes or our failures or our mistakes, our sins, our victories, our relationships, how we are as a parent, right? Just on and on and on. We will judge ourselves by so many things. But that's not what God does. That's not what defines us. Remember, when God sent Samuel to anoint David as king. You guys remember that? I love that passage. First off, Samuel was afraid of Saul. Because he goes, well, if Saul finds out I'm going to anoint another king, he's going to kill me. So God says, well, take a sacrifice. It'll look good. So he goes to Jesse's house. He goes, I'm here for a sacrifice, but we're not going to do it until all the kids are here. And Jesse goes, well, of course. So he calls his son. And the first one comes in. And he kind of looks like Thor. Chris Hemsworth, right? Big, strapping lad. Muscular, chiseled jaw. Samuel goes, well, that's got to be the guy. Look at him. What, right, Lord? And God goes, uh-uh. Okay, well, bring the next one. Not quite as good looking as his older brother, but still. And then the next one. And then the next one. And then the next one. And finally, Samuel's like, is this all you got? Just he's like, what do you mean? Is this all I got? Look at these boys. Samuel's like, no, is this all you got? He goes, I got one more, the scrawny kid, who we, the youngest, we leave him out in the field because, well, what's he worth? Great dad, right? Samuel said, we're not even going to sit down till you call him. So they go and get David. And David comes in. And we don't know how old he was, but probably fairly young. 15, 16, 17, somewhere in there. It's my guess. And he comes in. What's up? I was watching the sheep. Why'd you guys call me? And God taps Samuel on the shoulder and says, Him. Him. That's the man I chose. Later, described as a man after God's own heart. And what do we know about David? A man after God's own heart. A man who was chosen to be the line through whom Jesus would come. Jesus being a branch of David, a descendant of David's line specifically. What did he do? Murder? Adultery? Deception? 
point in time, God had commanded them never to take a census of the people of Israel. And David tells his commander, Joab, go take a census of the people of Israel. And Joab, um, hey boss, the manual says not to do that. I don't care. Go take a census of Israel. I want to know how big my army is. Ooh. After it's done, God comes to him and says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you the choice of three punishments. Three years of drought and famine. Three months of being overcome by your enemies. Or three days of a plague. David says, I'm going to throw myself on your mercy. Give me the three days of the plague. That's going to sound great on the recording. Uh, give me the three days of the plague. And if I remember correctly, it was something like 70,000 Israelites died because of David's mistake. Yet, God says, he is a man after my own. You don't think he can look at us and all of our sin and all of our failure and see us the way he sees us? Not the way the world sees us, not the way we define ourselves. Because that's what God said to Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, 7. You Look at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. He sees everything good and bad. He knows what we can become in Christ. He willingly forgives our past failures when we come to him in repentance, and he helps us move forward into the fullness of who he is and who he has created us to be. I love this. We're never getting through this message. Because when we were talking about Samuel, not Samuel, Samson, similar. When we were talking about Samson, one of the things that came up that I thought was so vital was that Samson was a man of great potential. Right? A Nazarite from birth, separated to God for his entire life filled with the Holy Spirit, given supernatural strength, given a very specific calling in what he was to minister to the nation of Israel. And in that, he blew it. He never lived up to the potential that he could have had. Never became all of who God had intended him to be. Why? Well, there were three big ones. Lust, right? Samson had a problem with the ladies. Anger, guy had a bit of a temper. Killed a thousand guys with the jawbone of a donkey. Now, granted, the spirit of the Lord was upon him, but I'm thinking to literally strike 1,000 people down dead with a stick. You've got to be pretty mad. Right? That it Somewhere around four or five hundred. Hey, maybe I should I should ease up. No, not Samson. Right and pride. You see the pride in the account with him and Delilah. 
where he just gets closer and closer and closer to the truth. And finally, when the truth comes out, he still thinks he's going to win. And it didn't work. And I said when we studied that in Judges, I don't want to be like Samson. I don't want to get to the end of my life and find out that I did not become what God wanted me to be because of my own whatever, whether it's my own sin or my own foolishness or my own laziness or whatever it might be. I don't want to be that guy. I want to be everything he's created me to be. The only way I can do that is if I begin to trust the way God sees me over the way I see myself. Because if I find my identity in my successes, or I try to find my identity in my family, even if I try to find my identity in being the pastor of this church, well, that identity is going to fail at some point. Not because the church is going to fail or, or I'm going to get fired or quit or whatever, but it's just because that identity is in something temporary. And my identity needs to be in something that is unshakable, in something that is the anchor of my soul, sure and steadfast. Because that's the problem we see in our world today. Right? People are trying to find their identity in anything and everything, and it just fails. I'm going to find my identity in my job. Well, what happens when you lose your job or when a project goes south? I'm going to find my identity in my family. That's awesome, but eventually the kids are going to grow up and move out. You're going to fight with your spouse. Right? Stuff isn't always going to be perfect, and so if that's where your identity is, you're in trouble. Oh, I know, I'll find my identity in, in the things that I enjoy, right? Some of you have played pickleball with me. If I found my identity in pickleball, I would be in so much trouble because then all of a sudden I, I, my identity would be a, a, either a prideful jerk or a really disappointed sad sack when I lose. But that's not my identity, and I'm trying to get back. Right? Because that can't be my identity. My identity is in Christ. Do I always remember it? No. Do I always live that way and walk it out? No. But that's where my identity is. That's who I am. As a child of God. Oh yeah, not even close. So we're going to close. I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 2. It took me 30 minutes for those three verses. And I, so we're not getting into chapter 7 next week, which is kind of sad for me. It'll, it'll be there. It's there. So we're going to close in something that wasn't planned, but we're just going to trust that the Spirit's moving in that. 1 John chapter, we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Behold, what manner of love 
the Father has bestowed on us. And that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So we're going to spend a couple minutes here, and then we're going to be done. The first exhortation we are given is to abide in him. And I love that word. I love the word abide because it means to live in or to dwell in, to rest in, to find shelter in. It means all kinds of stuff, but the point is you are in. All right, think about your house. You abide in your house. What do you do there? Well, you sleep there. You're nourished there. You eat there. Right? You get out of the weather there. You enjoy time with your family there. You have bad days there. When you're sick, you're there. You go to the bathroom there. If you're anything like, you know, some of us, we, we wait till we get home. I don't want to be a public place. Um, right? We, what else do we do there? Well, everything. Right? We celebrate there. We mourn there. It's our home. That's what Jesus is. We go to Jesus when we want to celebrate. We go to Jesus when we're sad. We go to Jesus when we're sick. We go to Jesus when we're hurting. We go to Jesus when we're in need. We go to Jesus when, what? We're joyful. In the end, we go to Jesus all the time. And that's what it means to abide in him, to rest, to be nourished, to be refreshed challenged. Why do we abide? So that when he appears, we can have confidence and not be ashamed. Think about that. Why would we have confidence and not be ashamed when he appears if we've spent our life here abiding in him? Well, because we'll know him. Because we'll have that intimate relationship with him. And there will be people who don't have that are going to be in need. Well, that day's not going to go well for them. But it's going to go great for us. Because we know. And he says, if you know that he is righteous, which we should, Jesus is perfect, know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Now, some people will read that and think, oh, well, I have to be per perfect to be a Christian. No. You have to practice righteousness. Which is what we should all be doing. Are we always going to do it right? Probably not. But that should be our goal. Right? Some people in this world pursue happiness. We're supposed to pursue holiness. You know how we gain holiness? You ready for this? We abide in Christ. Because that's where our identity lies. Then verse, or chapter 3, verse 1. This is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. That is our true identity. That is our true self. You'll hear that word a lot 
Oh, you have to be your true self or be true to yourself. Well, as a father, follower of Christ, my true self is that I am a child of God. And if I'm going to be true to myself, then that has to permeate every aspect of my life. Every single one of them. Especially when I play for the Lord. Notice how big John's mouth is. John and I, we've, we've kind of seen some of the worst of each other on that court. But it's so much fun. You know, the world doesn't know us because it didn't know him. But because we are now children of God, and this is so cool, it has been, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we'll be like him, for we will see him as he is. Think of the implications of that statement, right? We don't know what we're going to look like in eternity. We don't know what the resurrected body will be, but this is what we do know. That when he is revealed, we're going to be like him. Now, if his resurrected body is anything to note, right, we're still going to look like ourselves. They recognize Jesus. He looked like himself. He still bore the scars of his crucifixion. So maybe we're still going to bear some of our scars. He still ate. Woohoo! Gives all the more credence to my chicken fried steak tree. For those of you who don't know me, I have a theory that I'm going to get a tree that grows chicken fried steak in heaven. And it's going to grow next to a river of peppered pork. I have absolutely no proof that that's going to happen. That is unbiblical, right? This is nothing in scripture to back that up. I'm just hopeful. Because I really like chicken fried steak. And then next to it's going to be a tree that grows mini donuts. But, and you won't get fat in heaven. It's going to be awesome. I'm guessing. Right? What else could Jesus do? You know, he could walk through solid walls. I want to be able to do that. When he was on the road to Emmaus, he had dinner with the guys, and then he disappeared and showed up back in Jerusalem. So you can teleport? Kind of hoping we'll be able to fly. Just me personally. But we're going to be like him. And that, of course, is just some of the physical attributes we saw after his resurrection. But it goes beyond that, because what it means is that in eternity, we will be. Now, y'all know me, and I know most of you pretty well. The idea of me being perfect and you being perfect seems like a bit of a stretch, doesn't it? Here, but not there. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Like I said earlier, we are not to pursue happiness. Nothing wrong with being happy. I like being happy. I imagine you do too. Right? We know the difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is temporary. I always use this illustration, but it's so apt. A full cup of coffee makes me happy. What happens when I run out? The happiness is gone. Until I get back to the pot and fill my cup back up with coffee. Right? But happiness is temporary. Joy is eternal because it's not based in the situation based on God. And so pursuing happiness is to pursue something that is fleeting, something that doesn't last, but to pursue holiness in Christ as part of our identity in him. Well, that's something that will last. 
And that's something that will help each and every one of us move closer toward who he wants us to be. To him be all the glory. Let's pray. Father, I wasn't expecting these three verses to come out that way. I think you were. At least I hope you were. If not, I'm sorry. But if so, thank you. Either way, thank you. For the power of your word. Thank you, Father, that we can look at the example of Abraham and the example of all those who have come before us. And we can see so clearly that your promises are based upon your faithfulness and not our own. And I'm so thankful for that, Lord. Because I know how often I fail. And at the same time, Father, thank you that you don't see me in my failure. You don't see me in my sin. You see me in Christ. And for each of us, Father, help us to establish our identity there. To know that we are here. He is ours. And the hope we have for the future is free gift, not only of who we are now, but who we are becoming in him. It's all because of your grace, all because of your power in us. Father, I praise you. Thank you for your son. I pray if there's anybody here listening, anybody joining us online who doesn't know you, that they would reach out and let us help them not only come to Christ and be saved but find out who they are and who you intend for them to be in all things Father be glorified in our lives I pray in Jesus name